We're 10 months into the Gospel of Mark, and we're like just over halfway. So if you have commitment issues, this isn't the place for you. We actually almost stopped it, because we sometimes. Anyhow, so we're about 10 months in. We took a little six-week break. But you know, the deeper we get into the Gospel of Mark, the more I find problems with it. Like the first. Jesus is apparently the Messiah, but he doesn't want anyone to know about it. What the heck, right? That's kind of a problem. Mark 1.1, the very beginning, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then Jesus goes on for nine, more than nine chapters, commanding people not to tell anyone who he is. He casts out demons, and they recognize it, and he's like, shut up. His Peter, his apostle, calls him the Messiah. They see him transfigured on the mountain, and he's like, don't tell anyone. He heals tons of people, and he's like, don't tell him it was me. I mean, am I crazy? But this seems pretty completely irrational if you want to, like, get people to know you're the Messiah, right? I have a second problem with Mark, and the second one really frustrates me, and it's how incomprehensive the disciples are. Like, they are actually dumber than fish sometimes. For example, and we learned from John Mark, fish have an attention span of nine seconds. The, <laughs> the disciples are pushing it. For context, Jesus multiplies the loaves of bread and fish twice. First for 5,000, then for 4,000. And then the very next story, they're in a boat with Jesus. And they've only got one loaf of bread, and they're like, Oh my gosh, Jesus, what are we going to do? What happened to bread? And he's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Jesus gives them the power to cast out demons in his name, and then they get to one, and they're like, I don't know, Jesus. This is a pretty tough sucker situation. Not so good. Come on, do your thing. And Jesus is like, are you freaking kidding me? And I'm sticking daggers in my eyes as I'm reading. It is like incredible how incomprehensive the disciples can be. And then what um, seems like the solution to the problem. Mark 8, is it Mark 8? I think it's Mark 8, right before this. Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. And you're like, yes! Yes, finally, he gets it. He's the Messiah. And then the very next story, Jesus rebukes him for his incomprehension. Get behind me, Satan. And here go again. So, I got problems with Mark's gospel. All right? Open your Bibles, since we're on that topic. Mark 9, verse 30. That'll be our place of fun today. Now, Mark 9, 30. This is a cool section in Mark's gospel because this begins what's known as the way section. Now, it's called the way section for two reasons. The first is because Jesus is actually on his way to the cross, to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified and murdered at the hands of Roman centurions, all right? The second reason it's called the way section is because this is Jesus's most sequential and straightforward teachings on discipleship, the way of Jesus. So that's kind of where we're at today. Um, over the next couple weeks, Dana and Chris are gonna go much deeper into discipleship. I'm just gonna open us. I leave today and be like, dude, it's so much more than that. Yes, it is. I'm just going to open the can of worms, all right? I'm going to 
we're going to hopefully figure out what does Jesus say about discipleship? What does discipleship on Jesus' terms actually mean? And then I'm just going to introduce you to the idea that Jesus wants to radically and completely change your life. Jesus wants to radically and completely change your life. Flip it upside down. But alongside with that is that Jesus is unfathomably unconcerned about helping you or I achieve our materialistic goals, to live a pain-free or trouble-free life, to affirm our preferences, and he is definitely unconcerned about making sure that you or I are great in the eyes of the world. Instead, he points to a slave, he points to a child, and he even points to death and says, yeah, those are a little bit more like what I have in mind. Now we've called this series through Mark, uh, the new Exodus. Why? Because Mark is continually looking back to the Exodus of Yahweh, liberating his slaves, or not his slaves, liberating the Israelites out of slavery from Egypt into the promised land. And then what Jesus is doing with Israel is the same thing, and now to us is offering us liberation out of our sin, out of empire, out of destruction, and into the kingdom of God. But you know what's funny is when you read Exodus, it takes 40 years for the people of God to get from Egypt into the promised land Canaan. Now, why is that weird? Because anybody, a historian, a theologian, a resident of the Middle East would tell you even on foot it wouldn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to Canaan. So why does God take 40 years? Well, it's because for hundreds of years, the Israelites have been slaves under oppression, under violence, and they have completely forgotten how to be the people of God. They've learned how to work with their hands, but they've forgotten how to follow with their hearts. So he needs to take 40 years to get the Egypt out of them. He needs to take 40 years to teach them again how to be the family of God, daughters and sons of God who follow him with their whole heart. In essence, it's Yahweh making disciples. And then Jesus, in this opening section of the way, is offering his disciples and now us the same opportunity that you don't have to be a slave to your culture to the world around you you don't have to become just another product of brokenness throughout the generations be it in your family or the people around you and you don't have to live a selfish self-centered life that's just going to lead you unsatisfied in the end anyway here jesus says let me lead you let me teach you. Let me create and craft you and usher you into this liberation that you always needed but you've never had. And this, friends, is discipleship, the way of Jesus. Now, I know I took a bit to get to the text, but let's do it. Let's hop in from there. Mark 9, verse 30. This is beginning the way section, becoming like Jesus. Leaving that region, they traveled through Galilee. Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was there. 
because he wanted to spend time with his disciples and teach them. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of enemies. He will be killed, but three days later he will rise from the dead. They didn't understand what he was saying. Shocker. However, they were afraid to ask him what he meant. After they arrived at Capernaum and settled into a house, Jesus asked his disciples, What were you arguing about on the road? But they didn't answer because they were arguing about which of them was the greatest. He sat down, called his 12 disciples over to him, and said, Whoever wants to be first must take last place and become the servant of everyone else. And then he put a little child among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Anyone who welcomes a child like this on my behalf welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes not only me, but my Father who sent me. All right. So back to these two problems. A, Jesus doesn't want anyone to know who he is. Seems like a backwards campaign to me. And B, these disciples, everything just seems to go in one ear and out the other like we just read. Now I raise these two problems at this point in the story because this is the section of Jesus' most sequential and straightforward teachings on discipleship, and his disciples don't even seem to get it. And so how are you and I supposed to get it? That's always, I mean, they're the ones who have access to just be like, oh, Jesus, what do you mean when you said this? He tells them, clears it up, it's all good. And they don't even seem to get it. And some of us, I think this is actually like one of the bigger questions we have in life. Like, I love Jesus, but how do I do this well? How do I make sure I follow Jesus well? I know for it, that is for me. Some of us grew up in very legalistic and fundamentalist families where it was like following Jesus was more hostile than harmony. And then other of us grew up in families where nobody knew Jesus and nobody went to church. And it seems like no matter which side of the equation you're on, we all kind of have the same questions. What's this all even supposed to be about? And how do I do it well? I think Jesus is going to lead us into that. Now, on the surface, it may seem like the problems are rather disconnected. And uh, I would say they're not. <laughs> In fact, not only are they vital to understanding our discipleship to Jesus, but it is impossible to understand our discipleship to Jesus without understanding these two problems. All right? So let's just dive in. What's up, Jesus? Why don't you want anyone to know you're the Messiah? Okay? Anyone else have that question? Has anyone else read the book of Mark? Have that question? Okay. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a little time travel field trip back 2,000 years, okay? So grab your tunics, your sandals, and your hummus. And let's go back to first century Judaism together, all right? Now, this is a very interesting time to be a Jew, for sure. Herod the Great is ending his very extreme reign. And at the same time, the Roman Empire is not only thriving, but growing and building and creating what will one day be known as the Western world. Powerful, violent, dominant leaders are waging wars on countries all around us, demolishing people. 
erasing cultural identities straight from the face of the planet and taking over all kinds of land. And not only are these leaders becoming our standard for greatness, but they are increasingly shaping our understanding of who our Messiah is, will be, and what he will do when he comes. We look forward to the day when our warrior king arrives. I hope no one's listening at this point. Uh, When our warrior king arrives, he'll rule over the earthly empires with more power, more dominance, and more violence than any of the other leaders around us, and he will crush others in military victory, and they will all become just like us. He'll liberate us from violent oppression by elevating us, his followers, to places of greatness, influence, and power on the earth, just like the other leaders we see around us. We are expectantly awaiting the coming of our Messiah. All right. Sunday, October 18th, 2020, back in Dick Church's parking lot. No more pita bread until after with our soup, for sure. Okay, so I've got to ask you, now that you've spent some time in the sandals of a first century Jew, when Jesus comes on the scene, would you have been like, oh yeah, Jesus, totally, yes, 100%, yes, uh-huh. The way he serves the rejects and actually doesn't want to be served in return, but wants to be the servant. The way he feeds those with no food, oh yeah, 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 totally, our great victorious Messiah, yeah. Or would you have been like, no, 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 not even a little bit possible. No way. I mean, come on. He dines with prostitutes. He touches lepers. He spends more time with a group of 12 dudes who cannot seem to understand anything he says instead of religious leaders, military leaders, political leaders. No possible way this is the Messiah we were promised. No way. I don't, think, I don't even think I need to give you time to think on that. We would have probably all been thinking the second for sure. And Jesus was well aware of a first century Jew's incomprehension of the Savior they needed. In fact, if he were to just walk around flaunting his Messiahship, hey, it's me, the Messiah, not only would people not believe him, but they would have completely discredited him. So why does he keep it a secret? Why does he keep it a secret? Catch this. This is, this is the central part of the message. He keeps it a secret because the identity of Jesus as the Messiah cannot be understood apart from the cross. The identity of Jesus as the Messiah cannot be understood apart from the cross. Because the cross is where Jesus takes the punishment of evil, sin, death, the violent empires of this world, and then he dies to it. Paying our debt to God for the way we had turned our backs on him, and then seeming to have been defeated by those very powers, he rises three days later back to life in eternal victory over death, evil, and sin. And it's not until he rises back to life in light of the cross that we can understand both the kingdom of God on God's terms, but also understand him as our victorious Messiah, all right? Because no one ever expected it. No one could have seen it happening this way until it happened this way. 
Everyone expected the kingdom of God to come through forceful, violent dominations of the powers and empires around them, not by death on a cross and resurrection back to life. So do you see why it's so important that we understand this first question or problem in regards to discipleship? Because if Jesus, as the Messiah, cannot be properly understood until the cross, then discipleship cannot be properly lived apart from the cross. And that's really where we're headed today, because to be a disciple of Jesus is not simply to like some of his more noteworthy sayings on rest, on asking and being given, love that one, on love, definitely love that. Those are all true. But the picture of discipleship that Jesus gives us is the cross. The place where we lay our lives down, completely surrendered to the will of the Father. Because in my short few years, I know that God will ask you to do things you don't want to do. God will ask you to go places you don't want to go and lay things down you don't want to lay down. John Wimber of the Vineyard Movement, started right here in Anaheim, he said, uh, when he was still alive, said, I'm, I'm just change in God's pocket. He can spend me however he wants. I'm just change in God's pocket. He can spend me however he wants. You're invited today to lay down your life in complete surrender for God to use you however he wants for his kingdom to come to earth. So it's no wonder that the disciples just can't seem to get it, right? Are they stupid? Or are they products of their culture? Like they actually had no paradigm for the Messiah, Messiah being exalted in this way. And not only do they not understand where Jesus is trying to lead them, they are running in the opposite direction, right? Verse 31, the Son of Man will be betrayed into the hands of men. And instead of worrying about who's going to betray him or who he's going to be betrayed to, they're having a freaking sparring match about which is the greatest. I mean, actually picture this, okay? I'm a metaphor here, but Jesus is carrying his cross, to his crucifixion. And then they're all behind him like, I'm first, me, Peter, stay back. Like it is totally backwards. No cutsies, I'm first, I'm the greatest. I'm gonna be behind him when he gets exalted, not you. Uh, we're gonna go hard at that in a couple of weeks. I am so excited. I tried to squeeze it into one message, but I will rant. So Jesus calls them to him and says, whoever wants to be first, must be last, must be the servant to all. Whoever wants to be the greatest must be the servant of all. And then Jesus takes a young child and he puts the child in the middle of them. And he says, when you welcome one of these, you welcome me. And when you welcome me, you welcome my father. I mean, already you can start to he's turning things upside down. But what is Jesus doing here? that is so crucial to yours and my discipleship to Jesus. Well, he takes a child. And in the ancient Mediterranean world, power ran vertically down. I mean, it, you might not think it's a lot different now, but I'll explain. All the way from the father down to the child, right? For the reason being 
that the child had no economic or social status. Therefore, the child had no honor. And this culture of the Mediterranean, ancient Mediterranean, is an, is an honor and shame culture. Everything is for honor or into shame. And so a child had nothing to offer the family. They can hardly follow simple rules, right? In a culture and in a culture where social status and economic wealth equal honor, and that is definitely like what the disciples were after, hardcore, the very other side of the pendulum is a child who has no honor, no wealth, no status. And so Jesus uses a child to represent the lowly and the needy. If you want to be great, then shower attention on those who are regarded as insignificant, on those who have been cast shame in their culture. If you want to be great, hang with those who are sinful and, and don't have any honor, just as Jesus himself has done. But you know what's so beautiful about this? Is not only does Jesus put the child in the center of them, but then he pulls it into his arms, literally putting the child at the center of the kingdom of God. And if in that moment, Jesus was trying to show the world how great he was, he absolutely disqualified himself 100%. If in that moment, Jesus was trying to show you or I how to be honored in the eyes of culture in the world and the idols around us, he just disqualified us. But if in that moment, Jesus is teaching us how to lay our lives down, just like he will on the cross very soon, well, then we begin to understand discipleship on Jesus' terms. Discipleship cannot be properly lived apart from the cross. And how can we know how to properly lay our lives down until he's done it first? It's the greatest act of love. And I do, I feel so passionate about this because God actually now, right now, wants to erase our misconceptions, our misunderstandings of discipleship to him in light of the cross. We live in an amazing place in the world. Costa Mesa is freaking awesome. It's November, uh, it's October, but still. We are outside, two miles from the beach, beauty all around us, some of the most amazing people on earth, right here at Genesis. Amazing, especially this guy. But in Orange County, you and I will face so many cultural idols like money, like influence, like fast cars, like big houses, like even bigger boobs. And even more, that's the number one high school graduation present right now in Orange County. It's true. And probably more than anything else, cultural idol that you or I will face in Orange County is that the universe exists to serve me to make sure that I live a pain-free or trouble-free life. Yeah, yeah, I like community as long as it gives me what I need, when I need it, how I want it. Yeah, I'll follow Jesus if he gets me where I need to go. Or yeah, I like some of the sayings 
of Jesus, but dude, I got bills to pay. I can't just be giving my money out. But the truth is, these idols will come at you so forcefully to take your eyes off of those who truly need to be seen, who are truly in need around you. And they won't stop. And then partnered with that is this weird prevailing cultural Christianity where the purpose of you saying yes to Jesus is for you to get into heaven one day. That what you do on earth right now doesn't super matter as long as you make it to heaven. And I'll just be very clear. Like, <laughs> that is not the objective of you being on earth just to get you off earth. Terrible plan. <laughs> What's the point of all this then? Why did Jesus come to earth? It's not just bad theology. It is false theology. I grew up around that. Maybe I get a little serious about it. Because time and time again, the Bible is so clear that God's purpose for this world is to release heaven into earth, to restore all things because of the cross of Christ. And his plan is to do that through you because of the cross of Christ. When Jesus died and resurrected, heaven and earth were wed together. And then he expects you and I to deliver that revelation into the world day by day by day, moment by moment, relationship by relationship, meal by meal. But how? How do we do that? We want to do it well. I know I do at least. What I'm learning at least <laughs> through Mark is that it's not by achieving more honor or greatness power or prestige but it's in serving it's in laying your life down to freely extend the grace of God to a person around you it's about becoming a servant to those who have none not being greater than those who have none it's about loving and caring for the marginalized and rejected not by having domination or power over the marginalized. It's about people over position. It's about radical generosity over radical wealth. It's about feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, giving drink to the thirsty, homes to the homeless. And it's about being willing to and die on a cross to make sure that the people dying around you can come back to life. This is the way of discipleship. I just want to end with two stories. Um, in the past couple months, before I even knew this is kind of what I was going to be preaching on, uh, moments happened. The first is, last month, uh, Haley and I had like a pretty rough financial month. Some things we saw coming is what it is. <laughs> But I think it's very easy to feel very generous until you're the one who has less money. You feel like so selfless until all of a sudden two weeks of life come where you all you can think about is your money. How am I going to make it to the next paycheck? I just became a stress ball. I was less patient with Haley. I was, you're laughing a little too hard about that. <laughs> I was not my best me. I was not the best husband to me. Everything was about me, me, me. How do I care that I get taken, taken care of? Blah, 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 blah. 
But do you know what happened? Is a single guy, a young single guy in this community gave Haley and I $1,000 to get through the rest of the month. 1000 bucks. When it happened, I was almost mad. Here's why. Because I'm the one who didn't want to have to pull much out of my savings to make sure that I had enough. And here, this guy, who honestly probably has less in his savings than Haley and I, took probably a much larger percentage out of his savings just to make sure that Haley and I had enough. I was just struck with awe because I'm like, Lord, <laughs> you have so graciously used him not just to provide, but to show me the areas in my life where I'm not generous unless I have enough to give, when it's only easy to give, where I care more about my comforts than other people's basic needs. Here's a guy who understands what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He gets it not just because of money, but that's a big idol we will face here. Just God, help me get it like him, please. I'll share one more. Um, my friend Ben Kelly from college, amazing. I, he's the first guy I met at Vanguard. Uh, I was a freshman, he was a junior. And that year he took a bunch of us under his wing, uh, kind of as a mentor, but taught us all how to surf made us all our first custom surfboards, took us on our first surf trips. And from the beginning, it was like, you're just brothers. You're just brothers. There was never this, I'm a better surfer, you're not, I can't take out here, I'm cooler. <laughs> it's true, but that wasn't the case. And on May 9th of this year, he was at Manresa State Beach in Santa Cruz, California. Apparently it was pumping, it was big, barreling. He was having one of the best days of his life. His two friends had just caught in their last waves in and he was waiting for his last wave in before he would go hang with the guys. And in that moment, a great white shark came, attacked him, and he died before he made it to the beach. 26 years old, married, has his own business, done. It's the most tragic story. Do you know what's amazing? At his memorial, nobody was talking about what an amazing business entrepreneur he was. And he was. Nobody was talking about how good his boards were, and they were great. Nobody was talking about all the promotions he received at his last job, and he did. But everybody, Everybody in the crowd could attest to this. It was all about how much he loved people. It's about how he had enough time for anyone, anywhere, at any time. How he gave everyone the same love and attention no matter how long he knew you, five years or five minutes, because that's who Ben Kelly was. He got it. In 26 years, Ben got what it means to be a disciple to Jesus. And you know what? His wife, Katie, she's amazing. At his memorial, 
she turned to our friend who, for eight years, became an angry atheist. Angry, angry, angry atheist. Moved into a van, read all the books against God he could find, became an alcoholic, drunk himself almost to the point of losing his liver. And his memorial, she turned to him and said, I just want you to know, I will always be here for you. And he literally fell to the ground in shock because here, the widow of Ben saw him, the outcast or the reject in the group. You know why? Because she understands what it means to follow Jesus. In her greatest suffering, she saw the outcast and the reject. Today, Graham's walking with Jesus again. He loves Jesus again because God arrested his heart through a woman who understood what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. amazing. And so tonight, as we wrap up, I just want to spend, do we have time to worship? Can we? Okay. Do if you want to. I just want to spend some time worshiping. I want to give God the chance to really arrest our hearts tonight. Some of us have been hanging on to very strong cultural idols around us, myself included. Tonight, let's just let him go free. Just worship the God who is enough, who will always be enough, who will always give us what we need, he's asked of us. Some of us tonight need to hear Jesus ask like he asked his disciples. What have you been arguing about on the road? Where have you just, where have you misplaced your priorities? Where have you missed the essence of discipleship to Jesus and replaced it for comfort, replaced it for more than enough, replaced it for power, promotion, greatness, on and on and on. What have you been arguing about on the road? That's some of us tonight. Others, we need to respond by recognizing that it is impossible to say yes to the cross if we can't live it out on a day-to-day -day basis. And there's a lot of ways to practice that as a community. This is just very practical. Maybe even this week, I mean, Dana and Chris are gonna take us much deeper into Jesus' idea of discipleship over the weeks. But maybe this week, could you say no to a meal out to give to somebody who's hungry? Could you say no to a coffee to give to somebody who's thirsty? Could you clothe the naked this week? We all have way too many clothes in our closet. If you have money, can you give it to somebody? Even if just a little bit, it would really be a big help. And if there's someone who just needs to say yes to Jesus for the first time, but they've never seen a follower of Jesus be a good example of his heart, well, could you offer that just a week? Mm -hmm. And your list, I'm sure, is much longer, much broader, as is discipleship itself. You with this, in order to be great, 
we must become the servant of everybody else. Let's just pray again. Jesus, we love you so much. It's so easy to get in our day-to-day routines and focus on being a good Christian and believing the right things and saying the right things and on and on and on that we just miss the pure invitation to be your hands, to be your heart to those in need. God, tonight we just repent as a community for the ways that we've placed power, prestige, greatness, money, influence, things above you, above your heart for each and every person. God, tonight we repent. And so will you just purify us in this moment? Come, Holy Spirit, and just purify and refine it out of our hearts tonight. Give us eyes to see. Give us ears to hear. Give us mouths and hearts to speak your love into a broken and dying generation, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, in this moment and just move. Would you be at the center? Would you be our vision, God? We love you so much, Jesus. So much.